Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Exodus while I clean off the water that Clint spilled all over this podium. Uh, and let me just say a couple of things as you're turning to Exodus. It's, it is a joy to be here. Clint, indeed, is a good friend. Uh, he introduced me to my wife, Kelsey, and so he thinks I owe him a lot of things. And so, and that's partially true. Also, I've been eager to preach here just mainly because your uh, reputation abounds to the churches in the Pillar Network, of which I get a chance to lead. Uh, I hear wonderful things about being here on Sunday mornings, uh, not the least of which, I don't know if you guys know this, but the first song we sang was actually a song I used to sing in the 90s, and it was an incredibly cheesy song. And your reputation abounds because Jonathan can take a cheesy song and make it a good one. And so this, this indeed is a special place. It, it, being here, I don't think you understand how special this church family is, and you should count it as a great privilege to be a part, and I just pray that you'll continue to labor so that much is made of the name of Jesus here. Again, it's a really, really unique place, and I just pray the Lord's favor will continue to rest on you. I love this church. I need love your elders. I love your pastor, and I love our partnership in the gospel that we have with the Pillar Network, and it's a joy to be here and to help uh, continue this series in Exodus. Clint made it sound like I invited myself to preach here, which is not fully what happened. <laughs> he said, I want you to come preach. I want you to do it when the students are here. And I said, hey, if you're doing Exodus, this might be a good time for me to come. So that was the story behind that. Uh, my name is Nate Aiken. I, I head up the Pillar Network, of which you guys are a part. Uh, I've been in ministry for a while, planted a church, pastored. Clint was actually went through our internship back in the day. Uh, and again, he's been a great blessing to my family. All right, so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Exodus 25 and what is called the tabernacle. Now, this narrative is obviously important to the book of Exodus because this narrative is going to take up at least a quarter of the book. What you have happen is in chapters 25 through 30, God gives Moses instructions on how the tent and the other elements in the tent are to be made. And then in chapters 35 through 40, you have an almost word for word recounting a record of the fulfillment of the Israelites following to the letter exactly what the Lord has told them to do. And this tabernacle or tent is important because it will be a royal tent. It will be a holy tent, but it will also be a tent of meeting. It will highlight for us God's sovereignty and holiness, but also we will see aspects of his mercy and grace as it will be the, the central locale that represents his special love and his relationship with his people. A distinct people, a people that he has called out of darkness with their father Abraham, a people that he has delivered from slavery through the prophet Moses, who he has covenanted with at Sinai, who are to reflect him and to reflect his ways in the world. And this is to be a special place. A place where they will be reminded that he is with them. A place where they will commune with him, where they would meet with him, where they would meet with God himself. One commentator calls the tabernacle God's picture gallery. He calls it God's picture gallery where visual aids point to greater spiritual realities. It's exactly what we have just done here. It's like baptism and the Lord's Supper. The tent itself and the elements therein point Israel and point us to even greater realities of who God is and what God will do for his people. And this morning, what I mainly want to focus in on is what the presence of God with his people should produce in that people. I want to think about the fact that the creator of the universe is with his people. And we who are here, who call Christ our Savior, we are his people. And I want to think through what does his presence among us, what should it produce in his people? 
Now, as I turn to the text, I'm going to begin with a little bit of the context. I'm going to begin in chapter 24, Exodus 24 and verse 8. As we turn our attention to the word, I want to be reminded of what the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth. He, he talks about the first five books of the Bible there in the letter to the Corinthians. And he says this, he says that these things have been written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And so I want us to be reminded this morning as we read his word that the prophet Moses wrote these things as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here's what Moses writes, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him shall you receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Father, now as we give our attention to your word, Father, I do pray and ask for your help. And Father, I pray that you would help me to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people. And so be with us now. Father, anytime we come to your word, we come to holy ground, but... There is a uniqueness to the tabernacle. And so, Father, now as we think on this important piece of the Old Testament, Father, I pray that you would show us yourself. Father, would you show us our sin? And then, Father, would you show us our Savior? Father, now would you please sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the presence of a parent can mean a lot for a child. You know, dads and moms bring great comfort. They bring great confidence with their presence. I know when I was growing up, if I was scared at night, all I would need was for my dad to come into the room or for me to walk into my parents' room and just be near them. I remember times like when I was upset, you know, maybe after losing a big game and my dad's just presence and voice calmed me. Thankfully, given the stellar athlete I was, that didn't happen all that much. <laughs> That was a joke, but there's a kernel of truth in every joke. <laughs> Yet, sadly, I know of children who did not have the upbringing I have. I know of a nine-year-old girl that was moved into a children's home. Where every Sunday, it would be Parents' Day, parents could come to see their children who were no longer in their care. And I know this girl would call her dad every week, say, Dad, will you be there? And he would say the same thing, yes, sweetie. I'll be there this Sunday. And every Sunday she would wait on the porch, dressed up nice for a dad who would never come. The passage before us this morning is a reminder that the people of God have an altogether different kind of father. 
a heavenly father who by his presence reminds them that he is there and that they are his. However, God's comforting and confidence-producing presence is a complicated thing. One of the most important questions that we should ask is a question that most people don't even know how to ask. And it's a question like this. How can a holy God be a father to sinners? Or for the purposes of this text, how can a holy God dwell amongst the sinful people? And what we will see in Exodus 25 and in the chapters that follow is an answer to that question. What we're going to see, and it's my main idea this morning, is that through the tabernacle, God provides a means to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Through this structure, God is going to show his people. He's going to give a glimpse of how it is that he can dwell in the midst of a people who are sinners. Now, here's the context, and you saw this last week, and I read a little, little bit of it already. But this section begins with Moses on the mountain. He's hearing from God, but it's set against the backdrop of what's about to take place in chapter 32 and this episode with the idolatry of the golden calf. This is likely to draw the reader's attention to what proper worship is in order to contrast God's gracious act of dwelling among his people with their gross sin of idolatry of needing a golden image that they make for themselves. Yet this whole section, a section that will be enveloped by both the giving and then the re-giving of the law after the golden calf episode, is to remind us that God's holiness and God's mercy go together. It's going to highlight for us what our response should be to this holiness and mercy. Holiness and mercy that is demonstrated to us through redeeming grace. And what it should produce in sinners, it should produce in saved sinners worship. Which includes singing and prayer and the word. But Romans 12 tells us it should encompass all of who we are. That we are to live as unto him as living sacrifices who are to worship the one who has called us out of darkness into great light. And it's against this backdrop that we first see that the Lord requests of us willing worship. But we're going to see this. God will dwell in the midst of his people on his own term. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 25. Moses is up on the mountain and the Lord says to him, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. The Lord is asking for the people to give an offering, to contribute of their resources, to make what will be his dwelling place among them. And he is not forcing them to give. This is not a compulsory thing. Instead, he is saying from those who are willing, it says there in verse 2, from those whose hearts move them. It's important for us to remember God does not force our worship and God does not force our stewardship. He commands it, but he does not force it. And we see something of Romans 12 here, do we not? The people respond with great generosity. They demonstrate their overwhelming thankfulness for God's deliverance from Egypt. And the Lord asks for specific materials for this tent. He's telling them exactly what to collect. And I think as we look at this list, it's important for us to remember that not all things in the Old Testament are a one-to-one application for us. Here at King's Cross, your elders have no need for your goatskins. No need for your goat hair. Though guest preachers will take any pig or cow meat you want to give them. (laughs) 
But the level of detail, along with what material is being requested, is highlighting for us that God is not to be approached lightly. The request of gold and blue and purple is a reminder. This is a royal residence, that he is a king. He is holy. He is awesome in might. He is not your homeboy. Hulk Hogan, he is not the big man upstairs. He's not a genie we approach to give us all that we would ever want. No, we learn important lessons here as pertains to worship, to, it pertains to giving and to stewardship. The vast majority of what the Israelites have for the building of this tent is not their own. If you know from earlier in the book of Exodus, almost everything they have has been given to them by the Egyptians because God has moved the Egyptians to enrich the people of Israel so that they will get out of Egypt. And the same is true for us in our worship and in our stewardship. We give of our resources, yes, but those are resources that have been entrusted to us by God himself. Sometimes our lack of generosity may be a sign that we believe that our, our treasure and our time and our talents, they're ours and they have been well earned by us. Instead of understanding that all we have been given has been given to us by a good and gracious God. Now, eight and nine, those verses are key to the whole pericope and the, the whole structure, this whole thing, not just the holy of holies, but this whole thing will be a sanctuary for God to dwell in their midst. This is the purpose of the structure, that God would live among them, that this will be the place where he will meet with them, where he will speak to them, where he will remind them of things and where he will sanctify them. Verse 9 details that the making of this tent has to be specific. He says there in verse 9, do this exactly as I show you. This tent will house the creator God and so it must be constructed on his terms and not theirs. And this is vital for two reasons. Number one, because it will demonstrate their obedience to him. But number two, and this is important as we make our way through all the different pieces of furniture, it will highlight just how careful things must be done and prepared for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Now we move from there to the second part of the text and really what we're going to see from here is just all the different pieces of furniture in the tent. And we're going to see the one that's most important first, that being the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've grown up in the church, uh, you likely have heard of the Ark of the Covenant, or if you watched Indiana Jones when you were growing up. <laughs> and one of the things we see is that God's presence among his people in the Ark is a merciful thing. Now, with the Ark, I'm going to read every verse connected to it. You're going to see this kind of magnificent, minute detail but for time's sake, I'm not going to do that with every piece of the furniture, though I would highly commend to read these things. You'll see the beauty of what the Lord is doing. But look at verse 10. He says this, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it. Put them on its four feet, two rings on the side of it, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry them by. That's important because you're not allowed to, we'll learn this later, you can't touch the ark or you will die. And you, it says this, that the pole shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. 
You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. This is angels. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make cherub on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. They, they're bowing before the mercy seat. And he shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. It's like it's its top. And the ark shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. And we see it is the Lord's throne where he will sit and meet with Moses. This will be the only piece of furniture that will be in the most inner part of the tabernacle. What we know as the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. The presence of God, though everywhere, will dwell specifically strong in this one spot when he descends upon it. And what we see here is his holiness on full display. As on top of the mercy seat, this covering of the ark, on top of the mercy seat, you will have two cherubim facing each other with their faces bowed, we see, toward this atonement seat. These tremendous angels bowing show their reverence for Yahweh, for Israel's God. It's important for us to remember when we come to biblical texts like this, angels are not precious moments figurines. Like, angels aren't, you know, Cupid-like figures with diapers. No, instead, they are an awesome sight to behold. These are warriors. Genesis 3 tells us that they protect Eden with flaming swords. They are mighty creatures that terrify people that come in contact with them, and yet in the presence of God, they must bow. That's how holy our God is. And he says it's here at this mercy seat that he will meet with his people and that he will, verse 22, speak with them again. Indeed, his presence observed in this ark is a merciful presence because ultimately Leviticus 16 is going to tell us here, this mercy, his mercy will be revealed on the day of atonement when the high priest will make atonement. And listen to this, he will make atonement for whatever sins the people have committed, any and all of them, all of their sins by the high priest sprinkling the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice on this mercy seat that covered the ark. You would really have this gold top that would be covered in blood. And what's going to go inside the ark? Inside the ark is the testimony. Deuteronomy is going to tell us it's going to be the Ten Commandments themselves. Brothers and sisters, even in the Old Covenant, I want you to see how God relates to his people. Because we see here at the ark, we see both of his, we see his holiness and we see his mercy. Symbolically, here's what's happening as the Lord will descend upon the mercy seat. He will come down from heaven and as he descends upon the place where he will sit, the first thing he will see will not be the law that they have broken that's inside the covenant. Instead, the first thing he will see is the blood that has covered them. It is a striking thing that God relates to us first and foremost, not by our sin, but by our salvation. He is our holy God, but he is also our merciful redeemer. Now we move from the ark to the table of the bread of presence. And we see here that God's presence means provision. Look at verse 23. 
You shall make a table of acacia wood. The two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. In verse 30, you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me regularly. We have here one of the three things that will go in what is called the holy place. It's right outside the holy of holies. Later on, we're told that it should hold 12 pieces of bread symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And this lampstand that we're going to turn to in a second will continually shine onto this bread of presence. It's a reminder of God's illuminating presence for his people. It's a reminder that God in his grace is a God who provides, who nourishes, who sustains his people. The bread on the plate is not for God. God has no need of food. The priests are later told to eat it as God perpetually reminds them and reminds his people that he provides our daily bread. I pray that you will feel this and know this every time he takes care of your most basic necessities. He cares for the sparrow he provides for you. Next in the holy room again is this golden lampstand and we see God's presence demonstrated in light. Look at verse 31. It's a fascinating piece. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches, so three on each side, going out from the lampstand. Three cups, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out from the lampstand, verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it and give the lamps shall be set up so to give light on the space in front of it. This lampstand, sometimes called the menorah, is to light up the bread of presence. But what's interesting is that this candle is to, made look, to look like a budding tree. And it's to hold seven lights. The number seven in the scriptures is an important number. It's a number that represents for us perfection or completeness. It is a reminder to us that our God is perfect light. Indeed, he is the one who can say in the midst of the darkness, let there be light and there will be light. But it's also a sign of his, again, his presence that he's with us and that he lights our paths in ways of righteousness. Throughout the scriptures, his light is a sign that he is with you. In fact, in Revelation, when he is speaking to the churches and telling them that if they don't deal with their sin, that his presence might depart from them, what he says to them is, if you do not repent, I will take your lampstand from you. It's fascinating, though. Not just do we understand his presence with them. This, again, this candle is made to look like a budding tree. Some even argue that this is a picture of the tree of life from Eden. There's lots of similarities between the tabernacle and Eden. I'll talk about them in a minute. But once again, we're going to see that where God communes most closely with his people, there is a tree that gives life. Be reminded, our God simply has to speak and light comes from darkness. And he simply has to speak and life comes from death. And that moves us to the whole tabernacle structure we see in chapter 26. And we see here that his presence belongs in the middle of his people. Verse 1 of chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. 
Likewise, you shall set make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops shall you make on the one curtain. Fifty loops shall you make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and a couple and couple the curtains with one another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. All right, so what's going on here? This is the whole structure in mind. God is detailing how to build the curtains for this whole structure. And again, the cherubim show up. They're woven into this curtain. It's a sign that this is to be a guarded place. God's presence is once again being protected from sinners, just as with Eden. Moses writes in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve are driven out, he says this, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim in the tent, on this on these hangings, on these curtains, is a reminder to the people of paradise lost. And now, though he will dwell in the middle of them, unlike the Garden of Eden, access to him will be guarded. And then look at verse 31, the, the most important curtains of the whole thing. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with the hooks of gold on the four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Again, it's fascinating. These curtains, but particularly this veil, is of most importance. Because it is constructed to protect people from the presence of God. There are three zones or divisions to the tabernacle. You have the, the courtyard or the most outer place. You have the holy place. And then you have the most holy place or the holy of holies. And this final separation being a veil between the holy place into the most holy place. Where God would eventually meet with people just one time a year. Where he would meet with the high priest. There's meticulous detail here. Beautiful detail. Gold and fine linen and purple and blue and scarlet. Yet, this meticulous detail and particularly the fact that, the, again, the cherubim are embroidered into the veil is a reminder of the great precautions that must be undertaken for sinful men to come into the presence of a holy God. You know, curtains are sometimes a sign of love. I got married a little bit later in life. Again, Clint is to be thanked for that, for rescuing me. But for almost five years, as I lived as a bachelor by myself, uh, I had this massive glass sliding door that looked directly into my living room, and I had no curtains up whatsoever. So anybody walking by, any passerby could see whatever disaster was going on in a bachelor's living room. You might say there was unhindered access or unhindered sight into my living room. It would have been a kind thing for me to put up curtains. In so much of a more needed and gracious and merciful way, God is not allowing unhindered access or sight into his most holy dwelling place because now, at least for this time, his holiness and all his glory must be veiled. And it's only to be accessed once a year. Now, I've made allusions along the way at the parallels between the tabernacle and Eden because they're striking, but I want to hit six pretty briefly. And here, here's what they are. We see both are places where God would commune with his people. And the first one is this. In both accounts, in Genesis here and here in Exodus, there are seven speaking acts of creation. 
In the creating act of the tabernacle, the Lord spoke to Moses, parallels the seven speaking acts in Genesis where God said. Both are places where God would dwell in the midst of his people. In Genesis, in the cool of the day, here in Exodus, above the mercy seat. Both have this quality to the creation. Moses will say of the tabernacle, this is a blessed place. God will say of creation that it is very good. Both narratives will end with a Sabbath. Both narratives will end with a fall. And both will have cherubim guarding the presence of God at the east entrance. Here in the tabernacle, the cherubim, or at least now, starting to welcome people back into Eden. But they're doing it guardedly so. And as we will see, they are doing it only through blood. So what's the point of that? Why even bring that up? Well, we get a glimpse of Eden here where the divine and human meet. Where God dwells with his people. Yes, it's a, it's a glimpse of a past day, but it's also of a future day. Of paradise regained as the breach that has caused separation between God and man is being overturned. Slowly for sure, but from Genesis 3 on, there is a foretaste of a final dwelling place of God being with man. Hebrews sees the tabernacle as not only looking forward, Hebrews sees the tabernacle as looking up. It is a copy room, it is a copy we are told of the throne room of God where we get just a brief preview of how God will provide a way for us into that throne room. Yet sadly, Israel, along with us, we are sinners who cannot make it back into Eden. And that's why the next furniture, the next piece of furniture is so important because it tells us, it gives us a glimpse of how God will provide away. And that's the bronze altar, chapter 27. Here's what it says. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at the four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. It's interesting, you have this bronze altar, this place of sacrifice, and it was right inside the courtyard as people entered. What we see, and I've stated this along the way, that communion with God will now require sacrifice. The first thing a worshiper would see upon entering into the tabernacle courtyard was this massive altar. Because it's half as wide as the whole tabernacle structure. It would be a vivid reminder that the only way they can come to God is through blood. By a substitutionary sacrifice which would make atonement or cleanse them of their transgressions and sins. Sinners only come into the presence of God by his gracious invitation and they only come by atonement for their sins. The Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate in just a moment is a reminder of that for us as we only come to that table by his gracious invitation and we're only welcome there because of blood sacrifice. And notice with every piece of furniture, I've made mention of at least twice, but with every piece of furniture there's a mention of poles. It's a reminder that this is a portable site. Tells us two things. One, God's presence is not locked into a building. And secondly, it tells us this. He so identifies with his people that if they are going to be mobile, so will he. Wherever they go, he will go. 
Then after all of this is done, as the Lord had said, you will see this later on in this series, but in dramatic fashion, Exodus 40, 17, exactly one year after they've been delivered from Egypt, it tells us that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's so much going on here. I'm going to give some quick applications, though. We think about the Lord's presence with us. The first one is this. It should lead us to great comfort and confidence. God is with us. Ephesians 2, along with other places in the New Testament, are telling us this. God is building a new dwelling place, a new temple, a new tabernacle where his presence, his spirit dwells in the church in a building that is not made by uh, hands, but is made by living stones. We should have great comfort and confidence that God is with us. But it should also lead to prayer, great communication. Think about this most glorious and amazing truth. God is with us. We say that so often that we could misunderstand or miss, like we won't know how serious and how wonderful that is. The God who has created everything, who right now sustains us, gives us life, makes our hearts beat. He is happy to dwell with us. In the Old Covenant, God's presence would only fall down on the tent and would only do so once a year where only one person could go in. But now in the New Covenant, we are welcomed into the tent with unhindered access. But it's even better than that because we're not just welcomed into the tent in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, we are the tent. The Spirit of God is now dwelling in us. It lives in us. And this should lead us to faithful prayer. Because the privilege that was reserved for one person once a year is now given freely to us. It should beckon us to speak with Him. It caused such awe among the people of God that when Moses would go into this tent and the glory would descend. And that is ours every single day in the new covenant. And his presence should lead us to a great commission. If God is in the midst of us, what do we have to fear? And if what he has done for us is so amazing, how can we not but speak of it? But also the tabernacle should push us to great contrition, but also joyous celebration. Here at this tabernacle, we should come face to face with the serious and appalling nature of our sin. Just what it meant and required for us to be in his presence. The detail, the sacrifice. We cannot come to this tent and be unaffected by our sin. But brothers and sisters, we also cannot look at this tent and be unaffected by his love and mercy for sinners. Ultimately, this tabernacle is pointing us to somebody else, to the very God who will dwell with us. The tabernacle has shown us furniture and a structure and people who can bring sinners and the Holy One together. But all of them here are just shadows pointing us to something even greater. For you see, there will be another portable presence of God. This one will take on flesh where the fullness of God will be pleased to dwell bodily in a new and better temple. There will be another who will represent the provision of God. The one that we will be told is the bread of life. The one who will give us bread at the table. And we are told if we eat of his bread, we will never hunger again. There will be another lampstand. John will tell us he is the light of the world. There will be another true altar whose sacrifice will make way for worship to enter into the presence of God. Hebrews will tell us this. We have a better altar. We have an altar from which those who serve this tent have no right to eat. 
There will be another ark of God who will have the law inside him. It will be written on his heart so much so that he will never sin. Not even one time, not even one idle word. And this ark, he himself will be a mediator that will spill his own blood to redeem the sins of others. Ironically, at this place, this one will be abandoned by the presence of God. He will be abandoned by his father so that we who are lost sons and daughters might be brought back into the presence of his father. This is the only way to reconcile a holy God to sinners for God and man to meet. Because in the first century, the atonement seat is hung up on Calvary's hill, making it possible for him to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith. There will be another curtain or veil. Hebrews says it is his body. And on that day when the holiness and mercy of God meet, when he takes in his own body the wrath of God do our sins, on that day when he dies on the cross, Matthew tells us, When his body is torn and his spirit is given up, so is that veil that has separated God and man in the holiest place. It is torn completely in two from top to bottom, giving sinful man access back into the presence of a holy God. And then in his grace, the cherubim show back up. Think about what happens on that first Sunday morning. Our sister Mary goes to the tomb and she looks inside and John's gospel tells us very clearly what she sees. Let me get this picture. She looks into the tomb and she sees a covering. She sees a slab that is covered in blood. And at the top of that slab and at the bottom of that slab are two angels. And they're looking to where the true mercy seat had been. And now instead of blocking access to God, they are welcoming sinners back in because blood has been applied. What amazing grace. The New Testament tells us because of this one's work, we have confidence to enter the holy places by his blood, by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. All of this made possible by the true ark, the true light, the true bread, the better altar, the greater sacrifice, Jesus of Nazareth, of whom John says this, he is the word who became flesh and literally tabernacled among us and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And where is he taking us? Where does this end? Where does the tabernacle point us? Recently at Open Door, we lost a dear brother in our church and The tabernacle reminds us why we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Listen to what John says in Revelation, because it gives us a glimpse of the future tabernacling among us. It sounds like this passage. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, behold, I'm making all things new. Then he says this, I saw no no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine up for the glory of God gives its light. And listen to this, its lampstand is the Lamb. And night will be no more. They will have no need of light, of lamp, or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is a glorious truth, almost unspeakable 
unspeakably so, but this is telling us that his presence with us, rather than ending at death, will become all the more apparent because on that day we will see his presence and we will see his glory with unveiled faces. This is why John Stott will say this, the proper epitaph for, to write for a Christian believer is not a dismal or uncertain repetition, R.I.P., may he rest in peace. Instead, it is a joyful and certain affirmation, C.A.D., Christ has abolished death. Brothers and sisters, ultimately God will dwell with a sinless people, and that's not because he's found some. It's because he has made us sinless. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there is a way to become part of the people of God. There is a way to enjoy his presence. It's possible to be made right with him, but it's only through this one, Jesus of Nazareth, who is able to uphold the holiness of God and also able to deal with the sinfulness of man. If you will turn to him in repentance and faith, he will make you part of his own. There will be people here at the end who would love to talk with you about that. You know, that girl I mentioned at the beginning had such a different experience than I had. I had parents who were there for me. I remember on 9-11 when the planes hit the towers, I was at, away at college for the first time, sort of away from my family. I just remember with all the uncertainty, I wasn't that thrown off by it, but I just remember with all the uncertainty, I just kept thinking, if I can just hear my dad's voice, I'll know everything's okay. My mom did not have that. In fact, not only would her father not show up at the children's home, he would not even come to her wedding. And there's so many different aspects of the gospel. My mom's favorite one is the aspect of adoption. And through the work of Christ, she has found a heavenly father. And she is comforted by the fact that he will never leave her nor forsake her. Brothers and sisters, we have an altogether, altogether different kind of father. He has shown us his presence and he has shown us his love climactically in the person and work of his son. The one who has tabernacled among us and who has made us his by spilling his own blood on the mercy seat. Yeah, yeah. And he has promised to be with us even through death itself. Yeah. C-A-D. Christ has abolished death and he will be with us even to the end of the age. Father, we're thankful for your word. 